0: short rounds. Hey y'all and welcome back to the Unknown Soldier's Podcast. I am your host James Hauser and I hope you guys are just having the best Friday you can. To liven up your weekend, I have a little short round for you. So you don't have to go a full week without my dulcet southern tones. So earlier this week I kicked off my second series, which covers the Imjin War, the Samurai invasions of Korea from 1592 to 1598. This was one of the largest and bitterest conflicts of its age, a massive slugfest that saw the warlord Toyotomi Hideyoshi's samurai army fighting the forces of Korea and Imperial China. And today, I'm going to elaborate a little bit about that samurai army. I talked just a little bit about it in episode number 20, the Imjin War Part 1 Samurai Blitzkrieg, and I'm going to reference stuff from that episode, but I'm going into much more detail today. The Japanese Samurai is one of the legendary warriors of history and most of y'all probably have an image in your heads right now when I just say the word Samurai. It might even be an accurate image. But let's dig a little bit deeper and see how the Samurai Blitzkrieg functioned from the ground up. Who served in Hideyoshi's Samurai army? What were the ranks? How was it organized and raised? What weapons and armor did they use? How did they fight? How did the new weapons, the muskets, fit into all of this? And why were they such jerks? Let's meet the samurai. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. They're all going to be under the one big Imjin Wars source post. So if you want to fact-check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are all mine. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate, to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. The samurai army that invaded Korea in 1592 emerged from a century and a half of civil war. Japan had been divided up into dozens of territorial units led by multiple warring strongmen called daimyo. Toyotomi Hideyoshi ended the civil war in 1590, but it was still a very fresh memory. The army that invaded Korea was essentially the product of the Sengoku Jedi, the age of war. And this was reflected in three major ways. The first was that Hideyoshi's samurai army wasn't one army. It was a big umbrella organization made up of dozens of little armies, all led by their warlords, who all swore loyalty to Hideyoshi himself. The daimyo were like medieval lords, more than generals or officers of any professional kind. They had personal territories that Hideyoshi had given them, or allowed them to keep, and they used these territories to raise personal armies that they led to Korea. I want to make this crystal clear, because to me, this is the biggest difference between Hideyoshi's samurai army and any modern army. It was fundamentally different from the modern U.S. army, or the British army in the 45 of the Revolution, or even the Chinese and Korean armies of the Imjin War. Because Hideyoshi's army was made up of a bunch of smaller armies recruited from certain regions by local warlords. The army had no uniform, no regulation, no standardization on the broader level. On the local level, yes. Every daimyo's army was his own personal possession that he had raised from his own lands with his own resources. There was no defense ministry, no department of defense. It wasn't a centrally controlled or recruited army. It was like a potluck army. Everyone made their own dish and brought it to dinner. Hideyoshi's big samurai army was made up of dozens of smaller, home samurai armies. Second big thing is that I use the term samurai army loosely. While the samurai class, the warrior class, made up the army's leadership, the vast, vast majority of the fighting men were not part of this class. They were the ashigaru, the light foot, the rank and file. So when I say samurai, not every Japanese fighting man who invaded Korea was a samurai, so I'm technically wrong, but only technically, because the army was still organized and led by samurai, and the samurai warrior ethos was still the core of the Japanese army. The third big thing to know is that this was an army in transition from medieval warfare to modern. This is that big crossover period between medieval and early modern warfare. I talked about it in an Unfiltered Soldiers episode back in October called From Mustangs to Muskets. So all the samurai and Ashigaru are still fighting with swords and bows and spears. They're still wearing armor and helmets, but they are also using lots of guns. So the spear and the gun, the sword and the cannon, exist side by side in the Imjin War. So let's look at this thing from the top down. Hideyoshi's army was organized almost like something from medieval Europe. He was the head honcho, like a king, and below him were a bunch of smaller honchos, roughly equivalent to counts or dukes. These guys were the daimyo. Every daimyo was a samurai, a member of the warrior class. Some of them had a long lineage and could trace their fam- families back centuries. The Shimatsu family of Kyushu, for instance, had ruled their land since the Mongol invasions. Other daimyo were new men who had been rewarded for their faithful service to Hideyoshi. This included the two famous rivals of the Emshin War. Konishi Yukinaga came from the middle class, his family had been pharmacists, and Kato Kiyomaso had been a low-ranking samurai with not a really big, lineage. Hideyoshi recognized their service with promotion and landed estates, raising them to daimyo rank. But some daimyo in Hideyoshi's service were former enemies. In 1587, Hideyoshi invaded Kyushu, one of the four main Japanese islands in one of the last campaigns of the age of war. His armies defeated the powerful Shimatsu clan, and he took chunks of their lands and gave them out to his loyal followers. This is how Kanishi and Kato got their new fiefs, their new estates. But Hideyoshi also allowed the Shimatsu to keep some of their land as long as they submitted. So five years later, when they invaded Korea, the daimyo Shimatsu Yoshihiro led 10,000 men into Korea in service to his former enemy and now overlord. And he was only one of several former enemy daimyo fighting for Hideyoshi. It would almost be heartwarming if not for all the, you know, murder the daimyo were all extremely aggressive and ambitious commanders. I mean, they kind of had to be. The age of war had functioned on ruthless natural selection. If you were still alive in 1592, that you kind of deserved to be. Only one person in Japan could bend the daimyo to his will, and that was Hideyoshi himself. But Hideyoshi, spoiler alert, spent the whole war in Japan, so his daimyo in Korea often started arguing with each other. See, Samurai armies were most effective when there was only one top daimyo. Otherwise, they started bickering about honor and rank and who got to attack first and whose turn it was on the swing set, and this caused all sorts of problems. This might remind you of, say, the Jacobite leaders in the 45 from my first series, but at least they had a rank system. Imagine several touchy, violent men all of equal rank trying to make a battle plan. Anyone who says women are more dramatic than men hasn't read enough military history. So that's the Daimyo. The 1592 invasion of Korea, the Samurai Blitzkrieg, was led by 38 Daimyo altogether, even though I've only mentioned a couple. Can you imagine if I went through all 38? Your eyes would glaze over, you'd start to look out the window, you might even shut, turn me off. I only bring people up when they're relevant or if they're really important. My point here is that there were a decent number of these guys. Below the Daimyo were the Samurai, the legendary warriors of Japan. The daimyo were technically samurai, but they were above, sort of above, the vast mass of the samurai. The samurai were Japan's military aristocracy. If the daimyo were like the dukes or the lords, these guys are like the knights. And just like medieval knights, there was theoretically a code of honor slash chivalry. And just like medieval knights, everyone ignored it unless it was convenient. But samurai wasn't an occupation, it wasn't a job. It was a class, a warrior caste, a social status. Now, way back in episode number two, Divine Wind, I talked about the Mongol invasion of Japan. If you don't remember that, that's fine. If you listen to that episode, though, you might remember the old samurai way of war. The samurai of the 1200s AD was a heavily armored mounted archer, a skilled individual fighter who mostly fought each other in duels. But by the 1500s, this is no longer the case. Yeah, there's still individual fighters who fight in duels, But the old mounted archery stuff, that is gone. The samurai of the Imjin War, whether on horseback or on foot, was a close combat warrior. But in the Imjin War itself, very few samurai fought on horseback. The samurai of the Imjin War mainly fought on foot in melee combat. Now every samurai always carried a daisho, a pair of swords as a mark of their status. The longer katana and the shorter wakizashi. Curved Japanese swords are famous for their high quality and durability. The katana is still one of the world's most famous swords. But the samurai's primary weapon in the age of war was not the katana. It was the long spear, the yari. The yari was a very useful weapon, handy for fighting on foot, horseback, or a castle wall. The samurai still used the katana, but it was more important as a mark of their status as a samurai than it was as a primary weapon. And this is honestly one of military history's big inconvenient facts, especially for pop culture. Swords look cooler. They're associated with high social status. But spears have always been the melee weapon of choice, from ancient times until we stopped using melee weapons altogether. In battle, the samurai wore his heavy armor. Now there are like 20 different styles of this armor, a million different parts. I could go into it for days. It's an entire short round just describing the samurai armor. And samurai armor did look super weird. You might have seen pictures. It looks weird. But just because it looked weird didn't mean it wasn't very efficient. Samurai armor was a very practical combination of chain mail, scales, and plate, distributed all around the body to provide maximum protection and mobility. Now, the helmets were where the samurai got creative. Every daimyo had his own weird thing he liked to do with his helmet. Honda Tadakatsu wore wooden antlers, Date Masamune had a wide crescent moon that almost looked like bullhorns, and Hideyoshi's helmet had a sunburst crest, reflecting his, you know, mythology about himself that he was born by a sunbeam into his mother's womb. But the Imjin Wars weirdest hats belonged to Kato Kiyomasa, who was famous for the tall paper crests he and his men wore on their helmets, which is why I call him Banana Hat. But the samurai were, despite the name of this episode, not the majority of the samurai army. That would be the Ashigaru. The Ashigaru, or light foot were the new force in samurai warfare. Most samurai armies before the 1400s had been pretty small, usually just samurai with a handful of followers. But the age of war caused a huge change in both the size and the makeup of armies. Armies got m- much bigger as warfare got more complicated. Daimyo needed more soldiers, and for this they turned to the lower classes, the non-samurai, the Ashigaru. At first, the Ashigaru were next thing to useless, an unarmored, untrained, barely armed rabble that was better at looting and running away than fighting. But some Daimyo realized that the Ashigaru were an untapped resource, a valuable army waiting to be created. And Hideyoshi was one of those people. He understood the value of Ashigaru because... Hideyoshi had started as an ashigaru, one of those very few people that rises from ashigaru to samurai to warlord. So by the Imjin War, the ashigaru were the majority of any samurai army. They were recruited from the daimyo's land, trained, fed, armed, equipped, and led into battle by the samurai warlords. They were organized into companies, platoons, and squads, led by their own junior officers and NCOs promoted from the ranks. They were no longer a peasant rabble, but they were trained professionals, disciplined and organized. They even had armor now. Most ashigaru wore a a chest plate called the do and the conical jingasa, or war hat. The war hat almost looked like a pointed bowl, and it could be used to cook the soldier's rations, his rice, when he stopped for the night. The ashigaru was the core of Hideyoshi's samurai army. He wasn't a samurai, but a soldier. Now the ashigaru usually wielded one of three weapons. They used the yari, the spear, a composite bow, or a musket. The arquebus, the musket, gave the Japanese their main tactical advantage in the Imjin War, and the men using the arquebus musket were the ashigaru. After European visitors introduced the Japanese to the musket in 1543, the number of firearms in samurai armies rose. It rose fast. When Hideyoshi invaded Korea in 1592, probably about a third of his soldiers carried the arquebus. By the end of the Imjin War, gunners were the most important soldiers in the army, even more important than the samurai. The term arquebus is Dutch. It means hook gun. Now, handheld firearms were nothing new in Asia, but the arquebus was both lighter and more efficient than previous models. It wasn't revolutionary because no one had ever seen a gun before. People knew what a gun was. But it was a much more advanced model. Now, the arquebus was still a more primitive weapon than the flintlock musket. The one used by, for instance, soldiers in the Jacobite Wars of the American Revolution. We're still about a century away from that level of musket being adopted widespread. The arquebus was a matchlock, smoothbore weapon. Smoothbore, since there was no rifling whatsoever. And matchlock, because they had to be fired using a lit match and Ashigaru would keep a burning match in his hands while he carried his musket. When he needed to fire, he would fit the match into a brass lock, aim his weapon, and pull the trigger. The trigger lowered the lock and lowered the burning match to the touch hole, which would ignite the powder and fire the musket. The arquebus's disadvantage was its slow reload time. Only a very experienced musketeer could perform the 28-step reload sequence in less than a minute. Samurai commanders got around this by implementing volley fire, where one rank would fire then fall back, while the next rank took its place and fired in their place. Other strategies included pairing up units of musketeers with archers who could cover the gunners while they reloaded. But the musket also had tons of advantages. It was cheap, it took weeks to learn, while it took years to become an expert with the sword or the bow, and it had a longer range than the bow and arrow. Korean bows, in particular, were always outranged by the Japanese musket. Finally, it just had a shock effect. The smoke, the noise, the velocity of a musket ball were terrifying. Guns are scary. The Japanese came to see the arquebus as their most important weapon. After the siege of Ulsan in 1598, one samurai wrote to his father in Japan, When troops come to Korea from the province of Kai, have them bring as many guns as possible, for no other equipment is needed. Give strict orders that all men, even the samurai, carry guns. So, Hideyoshi's army was a gunpowder army, and the Arquebus-armed Ashigaru were the main cutting edge of its combat power. But the weird thing is that artillery, cannons, never really caught on. And guys, I'm not entirely sure why. The Chinese and Koreans always made much better use of cannons than the Japanese did. The Japanese used cannons sometimes, especially when they captured them, but it wasn't their favorite thing. They didn't reorganize their entire army around it like they did the matchlock musket. So unlike, say, the Ottomans or the Chinese or the Spanish, the Japanese only implemented part of the gunpowder revolution. Lots of muskets, not a lot of cannons. But the Koreans could tell you that the musket was bad enough on its own. The arquebus musket, the matchlock musket, not the katana, was the iconic Japanese weapon of the Imjin War. So these were the soldiers of the samurai army, how they were armed, where they came from, how they fought. So let's take a look at some numbers. We have records, extensive records, for Hideyoshi's samurai army and what troops each daimyo led. The muster rolls record a total of 158,800 men who invaded Korea in 1592. Now that is a stinking huge army for this time period. A stupid huge army. But not all those guys were combat troops. Like any army, a whole bunch of them were support. For instance, Goto Sumiharu led 705 men to Korea. He was a daimyo, very small-scale daimyo. Of those 705 men, 51 were samurai. 158 were ashigaru or samurai attendants. 10 more were staff, messengers, inspectors. The rest, 485 men, were support personnel. That is like 69% support. 200 sailors, 280 laborers, and 5 priests and doctors. So only about a third of the samurai army were actual combat arms. But I'm pretty sure that like in any army, all those guys would be willing to fight when necessary, and they did. A supply clerk in the modern U.S. army isn't expected to be infantry, but that doesn't mean she can't fight if she needs to. Different daimyo brought different numbers of men based on an assessment of their province's wealth and population. Hideyoshi sent out orders that basically said, you have X amount of territory, so I expect you to provide X many soldiers. This could vary dramatically. As we, saw, as we just saw, Goto Sumiharo had a very small territory, so he only brought 700 men. Konishi Yukinaga. The commander of the 1st Division, a church boy, brought 7,000 from his territory. And his subordinate daimyos, the other daimyos who sent troops to the 1st Division, brought 11,000 more. Shimatsu Yoshihiro brought 10,000 men to form his 4th Division, of whom 600 were samurai, 3,600 ashigaru, and the rest were support, 58%. So, that 158,800-man army wasn't all combat troops, but no army in history has ever been 100% combat troops. This isn't really that unusual. You need a lot of support, especially the bigger your army gets. A samurai army in battle was much different than a European army of the same period. The Europeans fought in rigid lines, but a Japanese force was much more loose, almost flowing. There were multiple prescribed battle formations. The kakuyoku, or crane wing, was for surrounding an enemy pinning them down with musketeers and archers, while the samurai flanked them from either side. The hoshi, or arrowhead, had the musketeers soften the enemy up, then the samurai charged through the gaps made by the musketeers. The daimyo knew these formations by heart, and they used them almost like a football coach's playbook. All these formations went back for centuries, but they had been modified to account for the musket, the new spearhead of any attack. The daimyo would observe the battle from a vantage point surrounded by movable screens that formed a temporary headquarters. He would give orders from his camp stool, waving his baton or his battle fan, and messengers would gallop off on horseback to relay the commands. Orders were often carried by drumbeat, trumpets, and the banging of gongs and cymbals. At the end of the battle, the triumphant daimyo would have the enemy's severed heads brought before him. Throughout East Asia, since ancient times, the taking of enemy heads had been the proof of success in combat. Whichever samurai brought his master the most heads, or the best heads, would receive the most honor, and the head of a famous samurai, or even an enemy daimyo, was the best trophy of all. These heads would be cleaned, labeled, and mounted on a board for inspection. It was like getting a flight of exotic beers at a fancy bar, except that it probably smelled better if we're being honest. Now, the Imjin War itself saw very few open field battles, especially compared to the Age of War in Japan. Most of the land combat in the Imjin War focused around cities and castles, siege warfare. The first stage of the war revolved around the high-walled Korean cities like Busan. But later on, the Japanese would build powerful castles in Korea called the Wajo Fortresses. Japanese fortresses were basically carved out of the earth, taking on a distinctive curved shape made of stone and wood. There were multiple levels to each fortress, making them look kind of like a wedding cake, and that made them easily defensible by musket-wielding infantry. The Japanese were always extremely difficult to defeat inside their fortresses. They made these things to last. Some of them still do last. There are still Wajo fortresses that are in decent shape scattered across southeastern Korea today. Attacking fortresses was a different problem. Most other armies by this time had developed artillery to knock down walls, the Europeans, the Ottomans, the Chinese, but the Japanese, as we've seen, had very little artillery. They had to take cities by sheer weight of numbers alone, thousands of infantry swarming the walls. Sometimes this was enough, especially in the early stages of the Imjin War, when the Koreans were still panicking and when panic was spreading. Uh, Japanese attacked a city with infantry. That was usually enough. But against a determined, skillful Korean defense, even numbers could not guarantee victory. Finally, there was the big Japanese weak point throughout the Imjin War. The Navy. Hideyoshi's samurai navy was raised the same way as the samurai army. He would tell a daimyo, Hey, you have a coastal province. You have X amount of people in your province. You will provide me with X amount of ships. But most of the Japanese ships were not purpose-built warships. They were cargo vessels, seagoing trading vessels, or pirate ships. The navy that invaded Korea in 1592 was built for transport, not for combat. And Hideyoshi was fully aware of this problem. He had tried to contract with the Portuguese to get some Portuguese fighting ships, like some caravels or some galleons, but they said no. So most of the Japanese ships in the Imjin War that weren't built for war had one very simple tactic. They would stand on the deck, fire muskets and bows at the enemy ship, then get close enough to board them and attack them hand to hand. The Japanese are like, we're good at fighting hand to hand, let's just try to do that on the water. That had been all they needed to do really in the Age of War, and what was good enough for an enemy Daimyo seemed to be good enough for Korea, the Age of War just hadn't seen a lot of naval combat. But that assumption would of course prove to be misleading. The Koreans were leagues ahead of the Japanese in naval warfare, and they were led by one of history's greatest admirals, Yi Sun-shin. The most famous ship in the samurai navy was the Nihon Maru, Hideyoshi's flagship, which was almost like a floating three-story castle. This massive ship was crippled by one of Yi Sun-shin's turtle ships at the Battle of Po. but it was recovered, it survived that battle, and continued to serve throughout the Imjin War. Later on, the ship was retired, and it was actually kept in service until the 1800s. The Nihon Maru's dragon figurehead served as a museum piece until it was lost in a U.S. bombing raid during World War II. What fighting ships the Japanese did have came in a few types. The Ataka-bune, the Sike-bune, and the Kobaya, basically large, medium, and small. The Atakebune was the main Japanese battleship a big, boxy-looking vessel with small firing slots for gunners and archers. It was big, slow, and dumb, more of a floating bunker than a warship. The Bune had a mast, but its main propulsion was a set of oars. Its crew consisted of 80 rowers and 60 fighting troops with 30 muskets, and if they were lucky, maybe a couple of cannon, but probably not, at least early on. So the Japanese ships, much like the Japanese army, were heavy on small arms and weak on artillery. It was a major weakness they would come to seriously regret. But all in all, Hideyoshi's samurai army was one of the most dangerous, most skilled fighting forces in the world in 1592. The other armies of the era, the Spanish, the Ottomans, the Ming Chinese, were different. Uh, Hideyoshi's army was big and lethal, but probably not as well organized as any of those other armies. Hideyoshi's medieval system of organization would be a major problem in both command and logistics throughout the Imjin War. But the Japanese were unusual, even in their period, for the sheer level of brutality they inflicted on the people of Korea. What's weird is they they didn't behave this way in Japan. The age of war in Japan itself saw almost nothing like the wholesale slaughters of Busan or Dongnae, or the capture and selling of slaves, or the sheer amount of murder and rape that the Japanese committed in Korea. And there are a few reasons for this. First, The daimyo were trying to conquer Japanese territories intact. Slaughtering people would be counterproductive. Second, the samurai were going out of their way to shock the Korean population into submission. It was their mission to shock them as fast as they could because they needed to get through Korea fast. It didn't work. In fact, it backfired, as we will see next week. Also, the Japanese were trying to make a profit from Korea. Daimyo, samurai, and Ashigaru plundered, looted, took captives, and sold slaves to get rich and bring booty home for the wife and kids. But finally, there was sheer racism. The Koreans were a different people, other people. The normal rules didn't apply to those people. There was a very strong argument that the Japanese in the Imjin War saw Koreans as less than human, or at least as a lesser class of human. Japanese behavior in Korea would easily match some of the worst acts of the Second World War. After all... People went hard in the 16th century. But Hideyoshi's samurai army was going to find out that other people could go hard too. And next week we will see Koreans and Chinese begin to fight back. It might have been a powerful force, a crazy murder mill of samurai and spears, ashigaru and muskets, battleships and armor. But the samurai blitzkrieg was only the beginning of the long, bitter Mjin War. Thanks a bunch for listening today. Of course, if you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all my sources and lots of images of the Samurai Army that I will post for you guys. You can always reach me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect. If you got advice, I'd love to hear it. Thanks for hearing all about the Japanese side of the Imjin War. And I hope you're ready to see the samurai get their butts handed to them next week. Check back on Monday, same time, same place, for the Imjin War Part 2, Enter the Dragon. See you then on Unknown Soldiers.